0: In Mark chapter uh, 15, starting in uh, verse 16, uh, read along with me as uh, uh, we read what uh, Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's residence, "and, and called the whole company together. They dressed him, being Jesus, in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. They began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him, getting down on their knees. They were paying homage to him. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and and put uh, his clothes on him. They led him out to be uh, crucified and they forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to to carry Jesus' cross, he was Simon of Cyrene, the, the, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And then they crucified him, divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription Of the charge written against him was the king of the jews they crucified two criminals with him one on his right one on his left those who passed by were yelling insults at him shaking their heads and saying ha the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days save yourself by coming down from the cross in the same way the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him among themselves saying he saved others but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. And even those who were crucified with him taunted him. Let's pray. Father, as we look into this grisly story of the crucifixion, would we see it for its beauty? For Christ Jesus was crucified for us. And Father, would you help us today as we go through this passage to worship him, to join him, to embrace him in the gospel. And Lord, it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. In 1946, there was a guy named Leo the Lip Deruscher. He was the manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, and his team had just split wins in a double header against the New York Giants, who were a um, statistically pathetic team that year. When the commentator Red Barber sat down with, uh, with, with the lip, he expressed how, how lucky these Dodgers that were an amazing team were to split uh, the the double header one to one against these these pitiful giants uh, and and the giants and how well they were hitting that day and and uh, uh, pa- pressing barber in uh, pressing in barber asked him he said come on Leo, be a nice guy can't you say uh, and give credit where credit is due. To which uh, the lip shouted back at Barbara, yeah, nice guys, yeah, come on, uh, do you know a nicer guy than the manager Mel Ott or any of those other giants? They are all really, really nice guys, and where are they? Well, they're in last place. The, ninth guy, the nice guys, they're over there. They are at the bottom. Well, this, uh, the, the lip may have been the first person to popularize the saying that we know of that." is the nice guys that always finished last, but he certainly wasn't the, um, the first to coin that phrase or the idea. The idea of weakness of nice guys was most notably written down by a man named Machiavelli. Uh, he was a Renaissance-era uh, era philosopher and, and politician and writer, and his writings actually greatly influenced political science, even, even to Today, uh, one writing in particular set his name in the history books. It was a book called The Prince. And in a, in a, it's a short manual uh, with advice for princes and uh, essentially leaders of any uh, large country. How not to finish last. And his biggest piece of advice in this book on how to get ahead in life is this. Stop being nice. According to Machiavelli, the only thing that matters is results. Your intentions have little importance. All that matters is what happens. And the nice people may have really good intentions, but they lack results. Intentions are of little importance. Who cares if your intentions were were noble, if they didn't result in something? They don't matter. And so according to Machiavelli, if you really want to succeed in, in life and in leadership, you need to not emulate the, uh, the weak, nice people. And, and instead, you need to start studying and embracing and borrowing every trick that is employed by the most wicked, the most dastardly, the most unscrupulous and nasty people that you can read about. Though he wrote The Prince in 1513... He certainly would have pointed to people like Chairman Mao or Pol Pot or Joseph Stalin or or Hitler or any one of those guys as an example of this is how you get ahead in life. And Machiavelli not only uh, enlightens his readers on how to uh, get ahead, but he also was keen to note where the problem was. And in his understanding, the obsession with niceness chiefly started in the West with its obsession with a Christian worldview. To Machiavelli, Jesus of Nazareth was this really nice man from Galilee who always treated people well but failed to achieve true greatness because of his goodness and his meekness. To him, Jesus' life was a complete disaster. He may have been well-intentioned and super nice, but the only thing that he got for for being that was to be uh, uh, trampled upon, humiliated, disregarded, and mocked. Judged from a Machiavellian perspective, Jesus is one of history's biggest losers. Now, as we approach Mark chapter 15 and the verses we just read, it'd be easy to take Machiavelli's position. Here's a man that, that claimed to be the Son of God, the Messiah. Here's a man that claimed that in order to get right with God, uh, a, a, a person must esteem themselves less and esteem God more. Uh, it is not to assert him or herself more, but rather to deny him or herself more. Here's a man that claims that it is not the, the ones that are willing to do whatever it takes to get ahead, but instead it's the meek that will inherit the earth. This is a man who came and said that he isn't interested in calling the strong and the courageous, but rather the weak and the afraid. Here is a man who said that it is not by brute force that he leads the kingdom of God, but by suffering suffering. By death, and as we take our journey towards Easter, our passage forces us to gaze our eyes upon the King of the Universe, who ascended His throne not in a Machiavellian sense, but by giving His life as a ransom for many. And we'll find in these words as we uh, and as we continue on Friday evening, and then again next Sunday, that Machiavelli was wrong. The ruthless leaders will eventually find their end and will end in destruction, but for those who lose their lives for the sake of Christ will find their lives for all eternity. So notice three things in this text. The first is that we need to worship King Jesus. We need to worship King Jesus. I'm willing to bet that Saturday, May 6th, of this year will be an unforgettable day. In fact, uh, it might be a a once-in-a-lifetime event because what is happening on May 6th hasn't happened since 1953. I'm talking, of course, about the the, the coronation of, of King Charles III of England. And no doubt it's going to happen with a lot of pomp and a lot of circumstance. And there will be all sorts of exquisite events that are going to happen. There will probably be a parade. I read this week that King Charles is uh, expected to ride in this pure gold stagecoach that has been reserved for the, the, the king or the queen of England since 1792. Um, He'll be crowned in Westminster Abbey, uh, which I've never been there, but it certainly looks really impressive. It's the place where every monarch has been crowned for 900 years. That's a lot of history. He'll be crowned by the Archbishop of Canterbury, a role that has had this privilege since the coronation of William the Conqueror on Christmas Day in 1066. This is a historic event, It's there that he'll give the oath. He'll be anointed with oil by the archbishop and from there, Charles will be given the royal robe. He'll be given the, the orb, the coronation ring. He'll be given the scepter and the rod of his possess, uh, of his uh, of his position. Saint Edward's crown uh, will go on his head, and it would be um, a a glorious scene, just as you would expect for the kinging of the crowning of a king. I don't know if you can king anybody, but to crown a king. Verses sixteen through twenty here details another coronation of sorts. But nothing like you're going to see here in a month. Whereas Charles can expect some adulation and fanfare and worldly reception, the newly crowned sovereign of England, Jesus, in his coronation, was met with abuse. He was met with scorn, ridicule, and mockery. After having been unfairly convicted by Pontius Pilate for no other reason than political gain, verse 15 tells us that Jesus was handed over to be flogged. Last week, we looked at the fact that flogging was the normal progression that Rome would have before a crucifixion in order to weaken their prisoners so that they would die quicker on the cross that it was a whip braided of three strands that had bone, metal, and uh, little metal balls that were meant to put deep contusions into the body. The the whip, the bones, would go into the flesh, and then when they'd pull it out, it would rip the flesh open. It would often expose organs and and bone. Many would die even before the crucifixion. It It was a grisly, grisly torture. And now here in verse 16, after this flogging, it tells us that the soldiers led him away into the palace, which is the the, the governor's residence, and, and called the whole company together, which could be anywhere from one to six hundred soldiers here. And Jesus, you can imagine, now is bruised and bloodied, to say the least, and he goes back into Herod's palace, and where the, where the uh, coronation would happen, and verse 17 now recounts it in this way. It says that they dressed him in a purple robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns, and they They put it on him. This robe that they used was probably an old military cloak. It was probably faded. It would uh, originally have been uh, the color red, but after uh, so much sun exposure, it would have looked closer to purple. Purple was the color of royalty, and so you can imagine there's this sense of mockery and shame. But then the, the verse tells us that they braided together a a crown of, of thorns. Now think about taking a stalk from a rose bush and uh, putting it into a circle, braiding it together, and then imagine somebody putting that not just gently on your head, but shoving it down on your head. I mean, just a little prick from a... a, a a thorn bush is enough to, well, for the phlebotomist to get a little bit of blood out for you. This would have been uh, horrendously painful. And, and notice here that uh, uh, this crown that they put on, it, it actually is meant to mimic a laurel wreath that is used to celebrate heroes and athletes and, and honored citizens. It was incredibly cruel. And here, they knew that the Jews hated him, and they knew why Rome hated him as well. And so not only did they do this to physically ridicule him, but in verse 18, they go further. It says that they began to salute him, hail, of the, uh, hail uh, king of the Jews. Now, this wasn't just an insult to Jesus, but this was probably a a dig on on all of the Jews. This was probably an anti-Semitic remark on their part because Roman citizens were forced to say, Hail, Caesar, Emperor, something that the Jews were exempt from. And here they're turning it around and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And it continues in verse 19. They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spinning on him. Now, I've never been spit on, but I imagine it's fairly degrading and insulting. But imagine with me that you had that crown of thorns from that rose bush on your head, and someone takes a stick. It doesn't even matter if it's a little reed, or cattail, something soft, or something really hard. Any pressure someone gives you by hitting you on the head with that crown of thorns would be excruciating. And so they continued this public spectacle here in fake worship. Verse 19 says, getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. This is just one big joke to them. There's absolutely no sense of humanity in these verses at all. This is all a bunch of uh, masochistic Machiavellians getting their jollies from this defenseless criminal. It's not unusual when someone uh, sees themselves in a position of, of power and purity that they have unrestrained control over someone that they find revolting and disgusting. The final act is probably the most heinous. In verse 20, After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. No, you might think that they finally came to their senses and gave Jesus some dignity for once, but you would be wrong. Remember, he just came back from the flogging. So you can imagine, he came in bloody and this piece of cloth was stuck on his back. And after a while, blood would begin to coagulate and dry. So you can imagine what would happen if any kind of cloth was on that back and was torn off, this here is yet another instance of Jesus's mockery. So, what do you think would happen um, to most prisoners? Most wouldn't make it to the cross. So, why do I bring up these gory details? Why do I take time to talk about the physical and emotional strain on the part of Jesus? Well, it's to show us that Machiavelli was absolutely wrong. True greatness is not found in stepping on other people to accomplish your goals in life. True greatness is only birthed out of love for others that would go to hell and back for them. True greatness is giving up one's life so that others can truly live. In the eyes of the Romans and the Jewish leaders here, Jesus' experience is only confirmation and validation of their assessment of him. To God the Father, however, this experience is the culmination of everything that Jesus was sent for. In this terrible act, he was not proving his lack of divine authority, but embracing it. He was being punished for our sins. He was having the weight of our iniquity put on him with every single whip and with every single torment that was given verbally from his attackers. He is putting on himself what God had sent through Isaiah so long ago in Isaiah 53. And it said, yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. He was, his punishment was for our peace. Peace. And we are healed by his wounds. When we look upon King Jesus, his flesh wounded for us, how can we not sing with the hymn writer, Praise my soul, the high King of heaven, to his feet your tribute bring ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven evermore. His praises sing, alleluia, alleluia. Praise the everlasting King. This is a Lord we ought to worship. And second, we ought to join Jesus on the road of obedience. Join Jesus on the road of obedience. The entire gospel of Mark is very fast-paced. It doesn't dwell on Jesus's teaching, but rather it is just a, a quick snapshot of mainly Jesus's uh, works. He uses the word immediately a lot. Immediately this happened, and then when that was done, immediately this happened. He's showing a fast-paced action Uh, for his readers so that we can get a a good synopsis of who Jesus was and what he uh, came to do. Things are happening so quickly here that uh, it's hard to to find a stopping point and, and reflect on what Mark is trying to tell us here. Verses 21 through 23 is a prime example. You have the story of, of Joseph of Arimathea that is, that is forced to carry the, the cross beam of Jesus' cross up to the hill of the skull for Jesus, and then you also have the scene of the crucifixion as well. But if we do stop, we can see that these three verses do indeed teach us a lot about Jesus' obedience. And because of that, uh, it shows how obedience ought to shape our discipleship, our life in Christ. But to do that, I want to take these these verses uh, backwards, actually. I'm going to uh, start them in reverse order. Let's first look at verses 22 through 23. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. This is the place of his execution. It would have been on or near a major road so that when travelers were coming by they could be deterred from crime Swift and public execution is a very good way to keep people from doing what they're not supposed to do and here Uh, In verse 23, we witness perhaps the most humane thing that Rome actually did. It says that they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. It was this concoction of myrrh with wine that was meant to help numb some of the the pain inflicted by the flogging and to be ready for the the crucifixion, but Jesus wouldn't take it. Why? Why? because he realized that in order to do what he needed to do to take the full weight of our sins and take on the full wrath of God for us, he could not do it in an altered state of consciousness. So he had to be fully aware, fully awake, and fully in control of his capacities as much as he could to be the spotless sacrifice for you and me. This is part of what scholars call Jesus' active obedience. It's his obedience that he does on purpose. And in rejecting this, uh, this anesthetic, he is, he is not allowing any help from anybody else or any chemicals. So when we think about our Lord and Savior, we ought to be grateful and mindful of how his active obedience was for our good. He didn't receive any help. He had no aid, and he was completely sufficient for us. But as it is, he drank the wrath of God down to its dregs for you and for me. But there's also a call for how we ought to respond. In verses 20, the the second half of, of verse 20 through 21, they led him out to crucify him. And they forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, to be uh, completely historically fair, this is not an unusual scene. Rome often forced um, non-Roman citizens to do menial work uh, for them at any given time. And so uh, it even included up to uh, carrying a crossbeam of a prisoner that's about to be crucified. This Simon of Cyrene is obviously not a Roman citizen. Cyrene, which is in uh, modern-day Libya, which is in the, the very northern part of Africa, shows us that he was probably just a Jew that was visiting Jerusalem for the Passover. But he wasn't just forced to be in the service of Rome. He was in a very literal uh, and physical sense the first person to obey Jesus' words from Mark chapter 8, verse 34, in which Jesus said, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This was Simon showing us what a life of, of obedience and discipleship looks like. Just as Jesus gave his life for us through suffering and death, we are to give our lives over completely to him. When we take up our cross, we aren't easing his burden by any means, but rather we're joining him on the road to glory. And this Simon of Cyrene was the first to experience that. And isn't it interesting here that Mark inserts the names of Simon's sons. Mark would have done this in order to dispel anyone that would have any questions about this. Someone were to read this gospel and say, yeah, right, there's no way this happened. And then Mark lands, oh yeah, it didn't happen? Go talk to Alexander and Rufus they were his sons. They were maybe even there the day that he did that. Go talk to them. They were witnesses of this. In fact, Paul even mentions Rufus in Romans 16 when he uh, is asking the readers to greet individuals. He says, uh, greet Rufus chosen in the Lord and also his mother and mine. So he obviously adopted uh, Rufus and Alexander uh, as a family. So the point of this forced labor here had an immense impact on Simon and his family. By taking up Jesus' cross and following him, he was setting the course for generations after him of faithful obedience. And these words here are meant to evoke obedience in us too. When we have experienced the grace and the mercy of Jesus, how can we not desire to faithfully obey Jesus in whatever he calls us to? Friends, we need to set our eyes on this king, and we need to obey his words. And finally, third, we should embrace the irony of this crucifixion scene. Embrace the irony. Uh, The final scene uh, in this uh, particular pericope here uh, has amazing gospel irony that we should embrace as followers of Jesus. Verse 24 tells us that uh, after the event with Simon, that they crucified him. Crucifixion was one of the most heinous forms of torture and execution ever invented and it was not invented by the romans they adopted it there were many other nations that used crucifixion as a form of of torture and execution of of criminals Um, most people avoided looking at a crucifixion scene if at all possible even though it would have been on very busy roads many heads would turn the other way Imagine someone taking something like a railroad spike and pushing it right through these two bones in your wrist. And contrary to what you've seen in a lot of art, it was probably in his wrist. It was considered part of the hand at that point. If a nail were to go in his hand, the weight of his body could not be held up on the cross. It would tear off and his body would fall. So it most likely went through the wrist. Think about those same railroad spikes being driven through your feet. And then the cross is lifted up, and all of your body weight now is being hung and held up by your hands. And after getting weaker, you keep falling down more and more until your shoulders are dislocated. You start having problems breathing. The only way for you to get a sufficient breath is to push yourself up so that you can get more air in your lungs. But as you push yourself up, you are keenly aware that there are nails that are driven through your feet. In order to, uh, uh, well, there are records that uh, some prisoners lasted on the cross alive for days. And when that happened, they were subject to wild animals. Wild animals and pecking birds. The eventual cause of death would either be uh hypovolemic shock or exhaustion or asphyxia or heart failure or maybe even a combination of one or all of those. He would have been stripped naked and hung to be shamed. Verse 24 tells us that they divided his clothes. They casted lots for them to decide what each would get. Even at his death, every piece of property that he ever owned, ever every possession, the clothes on his back, was taken from him and used as objects of scorn. And now we've gotten out that out of the way, we come to the beautiful irony of this passage. Verse 25 says, Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. They thought that they were applying justice with their mockery here. Yet, when God the Father gazed upon his Son on the cross, he saw victory It was typical of of Rome to put the charge of the the prisoners above the cross, and on this particular case, it would have been written in Latin and in Hebrew and Aramaic that he was the, the, the king of the Jews. It was a sign that was meant to be a mockery, but yet it is a proclamation of exactly who he was. And further, Jesus was crucified with one criminal on each side of him. This would have screamed to anyone passing by, He is a criminal. And he got just what was coming to him. But to God, this is a glorious picture of what Jesus was doing. How fitting is it that Jesus, in his last minutes on earth, dying with the very kind of people that he came to save... From the moment he was born to the moment of his death, he lived unashamed for sinners. He lived unashamed for you and for me. Even in verses 29 through 32, it shows how the very mockery of the people and the leaders is ironic in the plan and the purpose of the gospel. It says, those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. And little did they know that in crucifying him, they were destroying the true temple of God, and in three days, he would have it rebuilt again. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. You notice there that nothing changes with these guys. They continued to ask Jesus time and time again, show us a sign, show us a sign, show us a sign. And every time Jesus said, I'm not going to show you a sign because even if I did, you wouldn't believe. And the same is true here. If Jesus came down from the cross, which he had the power to do, more than likely the response would be, huh, that's interesting. The guy's still a jerk and let's kill him again. They had no intention on following him. And so, the irony is that they see this as weakness, and Mark is presenting this as the greatest act in history. Folks, isn't it interesting that we read of news reports of a professor at Hamlin that gets canned because they had an image of the prophet Muhammad displayed in class, that it was so offensive to see an image of the prophet Muhammad because that is insulting to Muslims. But yet we have a Savior that was bruised, bloodied, tortured, mocked, scorned, and it is the most glorious thing in human history. Eat your heart out, Machiavelli. The sign of Jesus' triumph is not in his coming down. It is in him staying the course, taking everything in, in the suffering and the dying for us all. There's a verse in Hebrews that says that he joyfully went to the cross, despising the shame There's not a better image of glory than Jesus on the cross, purely out of love and obedience, in spite of what those who put him there said and thought. This is a glorious irony here. But I wonder have you embraced it? Have you embraced it as the most important part of your life? Have you seen the horror and the agony of the Christ crucified as beautiful and sufficient for you? Jesus went to the limit and beyond so that you would not experience eternal punishment for your sins. So embrace the irony. Embrace Christ crucified for you. So, going back to the beginning now, I asked, uh, I asked, do the nice guys always finish last? Well, if we take strictly a social or a political view or a historical view, the answer would probably be, yeah, they do. But in the things that ultimately matter, life, death, and eternity and heaven, and hell, the nice guys finish first. In his suffering and death, Jesus was paving the way for us to get ahead, not by stepping on the weak, but by giving his life for us. Let's worship him. Let's join him. And friends, let's embrace him. Father.